This is the season finale of season one, episode 21. Don't forget to subscribe, follow, like on my YouTube channel. It'll help me out greatly. Uh, my name is Pez, your host, as always. I There are, there are only a few, handful of people, not even, that I would have considered for the finale episode of this podcast and if you all know going all the way back to episode one dean he was one of those handful and this gentle person is gonna be another and i wanted to uh end season one with him because he's been a longtime friend a and b he has uh, uh been living in the bay area for quite some time uh arizona born however so we're gonna maybe get into some basketball talk as well but uh he's none other than mishkin faustini how you doing bud i'm doing well thank you for the warm introduction i could have been warmer but you know i figured that's <laughs> that's enough <laughs> No, man. Um, I want to talk to you today and kind of get in depth um, talk. And I will preface all of this by disclosing that we're definitely not experts on this topic. But um, Michigan here has had plenty of uh, living experience in the Bay Area. So we wanted to talk about um, the the market out there and the including the housing markets specifically, but um, the economy of, and regarding the millennials and, and, and cost of living and all of that. So I wanted to get into all of that with you today. Um, how long now have you been living in the Bay Area? I know you were living in Berkeley initially, but now you're still in the Bay Area, a little more east. Yeah, I've been here for uh, 25 years now, which seems like a quite a long time so yeah moved here when i was a, uh, a kid and uh lived in stanford palo alto uh pleasanton berkeley davis we went to davis together uh so kind of been a around the bay uh a lot of different areas so yeah so you've you've witnessed the dream area of the bay kind of financially turn into nightmare <laughs> as, far as, as far as the expenses go huh but um that's 25 years that's a long time man i mean we we can discuss you know we we know some people who own homes el you know elder people who, who own homes you mean your in-laws even um are are i mean they bought it at such an opportune time you would think you know, because like I'm, I'm, I'm guessing it was mid '90s when they purchased their properties there, and 
that's when Bay Area houses were still like, <laughs> you could still look at them without pulling your hair out. But um, <laughs> it was, and I mean, it's a win, right? But who would have, who would have known, right? That it would have spiked this high. Let's start there. What, what yeah. do you, what do you think the reason is? I mean, there's some obvious ones, but specifically like what is the leading cause of the spike in pricing over there yeah it's a it's a great question um i mean the answer is is somewhat obvious but before i kind of get into that yeah i feel like when I think about the housing prices, I think about when we first moved to the bay, we lived in a house that was I think by most standards, a fairly modest house in terms of, uh, um, you know, maybe it wasn't huge. It wasn't anything too spectacular. It wasn't uh, anything that grand. Mm -hmm. It was a decent house um, in Palo Alto. And, um, and we lived there for a while. We, uh, uh, I stayed there with my cousins. We were living all together for a period of time. So, um, and it was a fun place to be. Um, and I didn't think much of it, but, uh, as we moved to different parts of the Bay, uh, and then years passed, I went back and I kind of looked at the value increase of some of the first homes that we rented. Mm -hmm. And some of these homes went from being, uh, probably worth, um, you know, a matter of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now if you look at those same properties, they're worth astronomically higher, uh, value. So I think I checked, uh, that particular house in Palo Alto and that same house was worth, uh, four, $5 million now. So, which sounds crazy to me because, you know, in my mind, I would have to say I've lived in a $5 million house, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, it absolutely does not jive with uh, the experience I had. Like, it's not like I felt like I lived in a $5 million house. It is just an artifact of the, you know, the market condition that has kind of led to this kind of astronomical valuation for homes. But to kind of go back to your, uh, your question, you know, what has led to that, uh, increase in value? Well, you know, the, the kind of, um, fact is, you know, the Bay area has done extremely well because of the growth of the tech sector. Uh, so this is a very unique area of the country where, uh, jobs have been, plenteous of the pay in a lot of the jobs have been quite strong. Um, and there's a lot of equity packages that come with a lot of these jobs. So it is, uh, it's a very fortunate place in the country and, uh, it has prospered through the years, but even the most like, you know, simple assessment would kind of lead you to kind of uh, be curious about these values because when you think of the amount of money people have earned from that time to now, well, it's not like 
you know, salaries have gone up five X in, yeah. in the U S uh, but the, if, how can a home price be, you know, five times as high and still have people continuing to uh, purchase them and, and uh, you know, buy into them uh, and believe in that value increase for the future. It, it sort of boggles the mind. So, yeah, I mean, I, you said that, you know, the, the job opportunities there, you know, they're, uh, the compensations are for the, at least the tech companies are for the most part comparable to the price spikes of the, uh, the homes, but not everybody. I mean, we know a lot of people who aren't in tech, right. And, and they're living out there or they're, they're trying to live out there, especially the millennials. Right. So, you know, um, how do we, first of all, this, this spike, I mean, what I, you know, gravity works for everything, right? So whatever goes up eventually has to go down. Um, now I know that the prices have the overall slope has been going up. However, you know, uh, there's fluctuations slightly, but it's not, I don't know if it's enough to, uh, makes sense for someone to be putting in that much money for a home, right? Especially with an, a non-competitive uh, salary, right? So it's, uh, what, how does that, you know, what's your experience with that or knowing people that are, you know, not uh, in that field? How do they, how do they deal with that? Well, I mean, I don't think the tech sector's wage growth has been like uh, in alignment with the increase in the value of these sorts of uh, things. Um, I mean, uh, one thing that we do know is that debt across the board is uh, has gone up substantially, you know, whether it's uh, homes, uh, student loans, all, all the various kinds of debt credit debt. Yeah. And so, uh, the, uh, you know, the, the magnitude of, of, uh, risk that people are taking on is increasing. So I, I think even for the people who are doing relatively well, um, in the Bay area, which is again, uh, kind of a, a very unique situation. So it's, it would, you know, it, it's kind of unfair just to talk about the Bay Area because it is unique. But um, even for uh, the people who are doing well, it still is, you know, astro- very difficult, I think, for a lot of people to get into a house, to buy a house, right? There's extreme competition, mm-hmm. um, tons of money being put in. Yeah. And also, um, uh, you know, the competition isn't just with, uh, people who are, you know, trying to buy their first home. I think people are trying to buy, you know, their second, third home. So, uh, and, and sometimes these homes aren't even getting used, uh, right. They're just investment vehicles for people who are looking to increase their wealth. So, uh, we're talking about investors that are, uh, 
buying up a lot of these properties in the Bay Area. And, and that in itself is, is alarming because, you know, how many investors do, you, do we know, right, that can do that? Like you said, a lot of us are just trying to get our first homes and it's and you have to compete with these, you know, probably like closer to the top one percent of wealth that are you're competing against. And I mean, I, I heard recently there was a house in the Bay. I, I can't remember what part, but it was it went a million over asking price. Like, that's, yeah, that's insane. Like, how how do you compete with that? Right. Yeah. And sometimes those are you know, all cash offers. Sometimes those are, um, you know, no contingencies on those offers. So uh, they're basically willing to buy some of these houses without even ever walking into them um, because the competition can be so strong. Um, So, I mean, my point is, is it's, it's annoying and terrible for all people, but particularly bad for people who aren't in this sector of the economy, you know, what about the people who are, um, you know, minimum wage earners and uh, people in different areas of the economic sphere, you know, how are they possibly able to make their, um, you know, their home? How are they, you know, possibly going to start their family? How are they going to be able to do any of the things that, we all grow up believing will be part of, you know, our future yeah. and the American dream that we, you know, kind of were told about uh, yeah. growing up. It's crazy. I mean, that's the thing though, right? That's what I was referring to. Like the non, you know, competitive salaries, right? That's, those are the ones I'm like, and there's a lot of them. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, I mean, first of all, I know personally, I know many people who, were formerly living in the Bay Area and, you know, and, and they basically decided, and I mean, you know, from my field of uh, teaching music, I was commuting, right? Myself, I can speak for myself. Yeah, I I would have loved to live in a city like San Ramon, right? But it was just unrealistic. And it was like, I was, and I had so many students in San Ramon, right? But I, I realized that spending four hours on, on a day driving was actually substantially better financially than uh, li- <laughs> trying to like live out there. Right. I mean, Shada and I would, w- when she first moved to, to Sacramento area where I am, she was, you know, we were toying with that idea of, Hey, let's go look at homes in San. And it was just like, yeah, this is uh comparably speaking, like, I mean, at some point you want to enjoy your life and not have to deal with, oh, I got to work around the clock just to be able to pay for the location, right? So uh, a lot of people, I mean, I never actually committed to living in the Bay Area. So I, I stuck with that and and uh, it actually screwed up my back long-term because I, from all the driving, my uh, I I always thought it was sports, but eventually due to the pandemic, um, I was forced to work f- from home and all the PT that I got was like uh, not fixing it while I was making these long commutes. And I always thought it was from like working out wrong or whatever, or like at, at the gym. And my my physical therapist would give me all these stretches and exercises and, and, you know, like all, all these suggestions and none of them would work. And then 
I just worked from home for like a year and all of a sudden my back was pain was gone. I'm like, <laughs> and then I, I put two and two together and I talked to my PT again. I was like, could it be my driving? And then she was like, well, yeah. And then I tested it. Right. I test, I like drove again for a week and it started to come back and I was like, all right, that's it. That's the one. So, yeah, I think that's super interesting because, uh, you know, that's kind of like the, the side of the, this situation, you know, the economic situation, which we're presented with in, um, around the world really, but, uh, you know, particularly in, in the United States is it has so many unseen ramifications that go flying under the radar that I think are interesting things to kind of assess. Um, for instance, I think there's a lot of people who uh, defer doing a lot of things that they kind of expect to do in their life because they're not ready to embark on something uh, because of a financial reason. I'm in too much debt to do X, Y, Z. I'm not ready to buy a house. uh, So I'm, you know, uh, you know, going to put off uh, getting married until I can, uh, you know, get a better job and improve my situation. You know, there's a whole like number of things I think that are going on that we don't even, we can't really assess from, uh, you know, every one of them, but interesting uh, effects of the economic condition that we have here. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, I think I've thought about this and I think the millennial generation, I know we were talking about um, the millennial generation and economics in general. Um, Our generation is, I think the first generation of Americans whose standard of living is actually decreasing from our parents in the last, like, I don't know, it's like 150, 200 years or something crazy. Wow. Uh, So the kind of like, uh, I think our generation has been the first to kind of really begin to question the status quo of what's going on around us. Like, is this a sustainable society? Are we, um, are we, is this like how life is meant to be? Why am I struggling to do X, Y, Z? Uh, you know, and at the same time, um, we're questioning these, this uh, condition that we're experiencing. Um, I think the prior generations, uh, particularly the boomer generation, (laughs) uh, the uh, baby boomer generation is, um, they're kind of the ones who have led us, I think, to where we are right now. And, and I think they are, um, happy with the status quo because it's been quite favorable to them, Mm -hmm. right? Their economic condition has been improved drastically. Um, But for us, if, you know, you grew up around our timeframe, we've basically experienced three major economic downturns in our, uh, you know, youth and adulthood, Um, you know, the one in 2000, the dot-com crash, the 2008 housing crash. And, uh, once again in the pandemic, 
the crash that basically happened in March, April timeframe. So for us, I think it's, you know, we're, we're seeing problems in what's going on. And I think it would be interesting to hear, you know, your thoughts on what is it uh, that we can do to kind of change the situation? What are the aspects of this that aren't uh, um, right? Move to Thailand. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just kidding. But I mean, seriously, though, like, yeah, um, I didn't even think about the dot com uh, of 2000, right? That you mentioned. That's that's also there. Yeah. I mean, the pandemic and the crash of 2008 were substantial are still substantial because we're kind of still dealing with the re- the ramifications of 2008 and then the pandemic kind of <laughs> added to that but that's that's what's crazy to me i mean yeah the the boomers uh generation like you said is is uh you know they were adults at the perfect time i would say right if there is such a word as perfect for that, but you know, they, they were at least, it was a favorable financial situation for all of them. So they were able to uh, tap in on, you know, a favorable price in favorable areas uh, like the Bay area. Um, and, and um, the, I guess the, to answer your question, how would, what I think about this whole situation, I mean, it's going to eventually have to fall on its head, right? Because, I mean, is it the the real question to ask is how severe will it be, right? How severe would it will it will the downfall be? Because um, we just discussed earlier that um, the people that are buying, you know, are in, either investors or you know they've had a substantial amount of money saved to be able to uh, purchase something semi-stress-free, right? With, so, um, but that's a small percentage, man. We we know that because, uh, you know, unfortunately, I mean, the the sad reality is the boomer generation are getting older, right? And they're they're, um, and you know, that's the reality of it is that we're going to be the ones that when we're in our 60s and 70s, you know, like, what's life going to be like for us at that point? And where's the market going to be, you know, in the Bay Area? And, and by the way, Sacramento is next, right? I can see it coming this way, right? Like, we're, you know, we're, I was lucky that I had family in this part of, (laughs) California or you know this side of the bay far enough that the prices were not that comparable yet but they're going up i mean we're we're looking for a house right now and and it's crazy which doesn't make sense cuz the pandemic you would think i mean and you you might be able to uh, offer an explanation on this but in my head i thought the pandemic slows down the market but it's actually you know, because people were lost their jobs. Pe- a lot of people did, unfortunately, and and people uh, had to deal with, um, you know, applying for grants through the state or the federal system. You know, the stimulus and all of that. 
was is there for a reason it's it, it means the numbers were so high that you know the government actually had to step in and help i mean how much help that's up for debate but it's it's the government that's to be quite frank they they kind of work slower right so they don't so when they had when they real when when they've realized that they got to help you know it's bad right it's gotten so bad that <laughs> the government has to say all right let's step in and and help out these uh americans so i guess what i'm saying is that you know what are we when it falls on its head and and be, you know in sacramento going up and eventually it's going to go to other states cuz you know right now i know a lot of a lot of my own students have moved out of the bay area right they've they've taken whatever they could get from their homes which is substantial and they've converted it to like a mansion in texas or or moved over to uh arizona and and you know a substantial upgrade um so you know at, at what point does the housing market in in the bay and uh consequently just northern california uh gonna have to turn down and and go you know make the prices go down again and make it affordable again what are your thoughts on that i well i don't think anyone can predict the future and anyone who says they can is <laughs> is is probably uh not right but i i think um you're right in the sense that um in the last year during the pandemic we've seen very very odd uh conditions in the market where um at the beginning of the pandemic stocks equities were falling extremely fast uh and there was a sharp downturn that uh managed to correct itself within uh like a month or two after you know massive stimulus had been passed by the government um and so yet again you know the government has to come in and basically provide trillions of dollars to the market to kind of um jump start or maybe you know shock the system uh back into life and uh that's uh the sad kind of reality of what is going on in our economy it sort of is on life support right even to this day we still have um a massive amount of money being injected into the economy yeah and that talk of how you know do we do we pull this money out uh has been on the table for so long um you know after 2008 it was 10 years of basically 0% interest rates right and that is because the government is trying to encourage this uh, growth in the economy encourage inflation yeah and now um you know what i'm hearing and what i'm seeing is is during the last year we saw companies that were bankrupt yeah like had no money but their stock prices were rising rapidly mm -hmm. so that's just kind of 
crazy. I mean, think about it. Um, I think it was, for instance, like budget or one of the car rental companies. I can't remember which one it was now, but uh, they're basically straight up bankrupt. And yet a lot of people were buying their stock and the stock price was increasing. And that should not happen in a healthy economy, but that same effect where, uh, you know, certain assets are increasing in value is happening across the board. And it's kind of devoid of rational reasoning or traditional, uh, understanding of how these things should work. Um, but, uh, so in a sense, I think the end game for this kind of game of speculation is not a good one. You're right. Like, I think there is going to be a downturn and I, I'm not sure, you know, where, what parts of the economy will be worst hit if it's going to be housing stocks, this, that, the other. And I don't know when, but um, I definitely can see that at the end of this game, you know, those who have been making silly investments will uh, basically have to uh, have their comeuppance, right? Like there's, yeah. And even that's sad to talk about because, you know, like it's not like we, like there's any joy in, in, in seeing that, right. You don't, you don't, you never want, I, for me personally, I don't, even the wealthy, like, you know, there's no ill will towards any of them. And I like, even, you know, if, when that day comes, like, I hope that they're protected to a degree, right? Like, I don't want them to be feeling the effects of that. I don't want anybody to be feeling it ultimately, but there is a reality to all of this, right? So it's, um, this game, and that's a good way to describe it. It is a game, um, but where, where, when you're talking about this and uh, talking about the stock prices of broke businesses going up, what do you? What are your thoughts on that? What do you associate that to? Like, how does that? How is that happening, despite the the financial crisis of the company? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the anecdotally, the story that I've heard, um, and I don't, I don't have like, you know, the statistics to back it up, but what I've heard is that a lot of people who were home during the pandemic, didn't have anything to do, downloaded Robin hood and started buying things that they knew by name, right? Things that had brand names that, um, you know, were familiar for people their whole life growing up. Um, right. So GameStop is, is, you know, the, the most popular one, uh, out of those AMC movies, right? So companies that were struggling, uh, during the pandemic and, um, so somehow, uh, uh, you know, whether it's from Reddit uh, or other sources, people have come together collectively and decided that I think what, you know, basically what happened is in their own minds, they recognize this is a, completely a game. Like none of this economic condition we're in is based on what's good, what's just, what's right. 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 We've seen three major downturns in our lifetime. And many of us have been 
you know, hosed in the process of some of these downturns. And meanwhile, the people who have benefited the most are generally those who already were doing well, right? People who are able to buy their second, third home when that, you know, housing crisis really hit. And now the value of those homes tripled, you know, yeah. by doing almost nothing in comparison to, you know, what, what it takes to do a day job. So um, it, I think a lot of people recognize this is a bit of a game. And so if this is a game, why wouldn't I play it? Why wouldn't I uh, go on Reddit and find, uh, you know, oh, everyone's going to buy GameStop, uh, uh, GameStop stock uh, or, or options tomorrow, and um, this is what they're saying to do. Okay, if we can collectively do something together, all of a sudden this irrational thing will work out in our favor instead of in the favor of, uh, you know, a Wall Street titan or something, right? Yeah. yeah. So, so what, I think, what, yeah, but like, how does, like, I mean, I'm I'm guilty of that, right? I I did that. Not even I'm not even going to use the word guilty, but like I participated, right? And and, um you know, the whole wall street bets and all of that. And, um, it is, it, it, do you, do you see the rising of the, uh, I don't even know what to call them. Like these, this collective group of majority of the country, let's just stick to the country, right? Majority of this nation, like, uh, kind of fit that wall street bets, bill that like they can play that game right like against the upper one percent or the or the wealthy um or or these companies that like we said are struggling but then we've literally been able to by buying their stocks like have been able to keep them afloat right and it's and it's how long can that go on Right, because even Robinhood got in trouble for it, right? Because they started to monitor it and they started to, you know, do some shady things in the process that they got called out on. Um, and they're not the only app; other other apps also. But we're just talking about that Robinhood for now. So, how long can that happen? Is that actually going to lead to any substantial change in the market? Uh, is investing in these in these companies that are struggling but the bigger picture being that you know more and more uh millennials let's just say are you know are are participating in this and they're putting their hard-earned money into it and and they're seeing gamestop for example turn around in their value yeah. right like can we attribute that eventually to like big house companies that buy, you know, prop many uh, acres of land and put their uh, houses on? Can it have effects ultimately on companies like that? Um, well, I think the, you know, if you were, uh, if you had bought a house in, you know, 2007, at the peak of the values, you know, let's say March of 2007, yeah, you would have paid a really high price because, you know, the market had such a huge demand uh, that was basically, 
fueled on by excessive lending practices. Um, and then by 2008, one year later, you would have been looking at the value of your property and you would have been in total shambles, right? You would have been like, wow, I bought this maybe for uh, twice the price and now it's worth less. Maybe, I, maybe I'm even underwater in my loan. And the whole story, I think we're told in um, growing up in America is that, you know, investing is an important part of, you know, how you need to deal with your finances. You know, buying a home is a solid investment. Yeah. Uh, you can't go wrong there, right? Like no matter what, the value is going to go up. That's kind of the sentiment that you hear. Yeah. And so for those people who bought a home one year later, they're underwater. How can you tell those people who have lost maybe hundreds of thousands of dollars or who maybe lose their home, their family is put out, you know, how can you tell that person that that investment is a good one, but buying, you know, something else is, is a bad one. Right. So I think that there's almost like a rejection of like, you people, you experts don't know what you're doing, right? Yeah. If we just stick together as a, as a group, we yeah. can actually shape our own outcome, right? And that's what you guys are really doing, right? You, uh, if you look at you know how some of these uh, uh, deals have taken place from you know Wall Street firms, they're really kind of like obviously in helping each other, incentivizing each other. Uh, to help boost their own condition, right? Yeah. And so why shouldn't people, you know, play this game in the same way in whatever way that can work? It just right. so happens that people found GameStop as one way to kind of uh, be able to win at the game, right? It's not, I, I don't think it's a good investment. I don't think anyone thinks that... Uh, you know, it's a sustainable thing forever. So um, was it more of a rebellious investment, kind of? Kind of. It was like, I know I can I can basically win in this particular situation. Yeah. And so why the wouldn't formula I? formula works. Yeah, the formula is going to work. But I guess, right. I guess <clears throat> as you said, you know, GameStop long-term is not a, it's not a uh, advisable investment, right? However, why not be able to turn that on to other companies that the people want, right? The, the majority that actually support, right? Not what the, the people at, top are, at the top are recommending or, or shoving down our throats. Oh, you should do this. Like you said, buying a house. Great idea, right? Where did that all come from? You know, like um, I wouldn't be surprised if, that all you know was sparked from the top to get people condition people to start doing this right and many unfortunately fell for that and then the crash happened in eight in 2008 and then you know that and they had they suffered as a result but and i know we can't predict the future like we we said um but uh i guess to bring it you know, in more like kind of zoom in on a micro approach as far as like 
how you and I are dealing with it because there are many millions that are in the similar condition as us, right? So how do we, um, I guess I should ask more specifically because we were talking about the Bay. Um, do you have a time limit that like a subconscious, like subconsciously, are you like, I can only like, I can deal with waiting for, for this right timing to buy for only so long, right? How is that before, I guess I'm asking like, has the idea of leaving the Bay Area at, at a certain point down the road if you don't see improvements, right? And I guess what has that crossed your mind, A, and then B, um, if it hasn't, what it like what specifically are you look looking for as a good time if you're looking to buy because some people don't even care to buy anymore that's why i'm asking right like is like buying is is at this point especially in the bay is 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 a shot in your financial butt <laughs> you know <laughs> so so what what do you uh, so like what I, I just want to get in your head on that. Like what, you know, cause I, I made it clear on my end. I'm, I played around with the idea of moving to San Ramon, but quickly realized it's, it's not feasible. And, you know, I wanted to still do more living than working. So it, it that's what led me to not want to do that. And, and Shada as well, but you know, Sacramento is nice and it's coming up. So we're happy here, but yeah. What about you? Um, well, I think, yeah, absolutely. I think it would be foolish not think about, um, living in other places. Uh, why? I think that there are pros and cons to each location, right? So you, you know, weather in Bay area is great, right. Compared to a lot of places that you could move to. Right. Um, and I think, uh, there, there's a lot of pros to being here and there's a lot of cons here as well. So, Yes, uh, I've thought of, you know, different areas of living, but in general, um, I think when it comes to buying anything, it's really hard to time what is the optimal, you know, moment to make any purchase. So, um, I don't think, you know, you can live your life based on that, but, uh, in general, I think the more fundamental thing that is um, something to ponder, I think, for, for everyone is what is like the, the purpose of all of this kind of uh, stuff we're doing, right? Like, it seems like, um, you know, we live in a very materially prosperous area um, and, you know, in the United States in general, but, you know, within the Bay area, even more so, uh, but what is like the point of all of the, the material stuff that we have here? Um, you know, is it better for us to live somewhere where it's a simpler life? Like, should we go, uh, you know, live in areas where the towns are smaller? And I think, and during the pandemic, many people said, Hey, I might as well do that. I can buy a nicer house, uh, but live maybe 
a more simple life in a smaller town, something like that. Especially those who were uh, transitioned to online or working from home, because then it was easy to do that. You know, there's no reason to pay the mortgage you were paying in the Bay Area. And that right. happened with my students, like I said, but continue. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, there are a few reasons, I think, why people might want to live in an area. And obviously, one is, you know, if your family's in that area, then yeah. that is a, a reason that is uh, not insignificant, you know, that you that you may want to factor in. But um, in terms of actually, like, location-wise, um, I don't, I, I can see very easily why people are kind of dispersing around the country into different areas. I know everyone talks about Texas as a place. I know I keep hearing uh, people complaining about cost of living in California um, uh, and, oh, I'm going to move to Texas. There's no this tax, that tax, or, you know, some other place um, as well. So I, I think... Um, you know, everyone is kind of starting to think along these lines, like, hey, why am I doing this? You know, why don't I go somewhere else? And that, those, you know, that's an interesting thought uh, for home buying in particular in the Bay Area, you know, uh, you know, what's the effect that that will have on uh, prices? You know, that's something I've thought about. Maybe you uh, have, uh, some thoughts on that too, but, you know, if everyone is leaving and if, uh, supposedly some companies have, you know, decided to relocate their headquarters to other areas, you know, what effect will that have on, um, on the prices in theory, uh, you would think they would be going down, right? There, yeah. We've been told that there's an exodus from California and yet home prices have gone up. So, it doesn't seem to me as if there's a, you know, a much of an exodus uh, if prices are going up. Of course, um, you know, there's there's more than one factor there, but but I mean, to I I I do uh, see the prices going up maybe as like more of a temporary thing, like a shorter temporary uh, uh, move perhaps from, uh, again, people that are controlling the market at the top. Um, but ultimately, if they don't have anyone to either rent out those homes to or, or sell those homes to, because um, people are, are not going to pay it and they're going to go to Texas or Florida or, you know, Arizona, um, then, then, yeah, I mean, the only logical thing is they'll have to drop their prices. But I guess the question is um, how, how much lower the population of the Bay area has to get to, like what is the threshold right before that happens. But I, I think even the prices going up right now uh, throughout the country, but spe especially in the Bay area, I think that is like kind of like a, I feel like it's a last ditch effort, right? It's, it's just, it's like a, some companies are, some home selling companies are trying to make up for what they couldn't make during the pandemic because everything was shut down. 
um, investors could be, it could be the same thing, private investors. Um, but I, again, you, you said it earlier, the, the materialistic view of this country and specifically, especially in the Bay area from these big time investors is there's gotta be a consequence to all this, right? It, it, it's just, it's, first of all, it's a game, so it's not real, right? We talked about that. So how long can we sustain this game without it getting to the end or without you losing this game? And I'm talking about the people up top, not just, I mean, the people that are, that we're referring to that are kind of more in our demographic, we've been dealing with the struggles for long enough, but the, I think one good thing about that is I think, and I'm not, insinuating that people that are up top don't value this but um it's a reminder more of a reminder for us that are uh at this level to value something outside of material things a little more right because like you said family like one reason to stay out there is family and that's huge because there's no price you could put on that having that uh, bond with family, having the um, um, bond with your with your significant other, or or just traveling to a location for its scenic value, as opposed to um, you know going and 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 just purchasing the finer things and all that. Which isn't there's nothing wrong with that. It's just. Um, half of uh, the some of those things are invaluable and some of those things are there's a, a tangible you know like dollar amount that you can attach to it you know what i mean and and i think at least for me i start i'm starting to see the value in the invaluables much more right the older i get um and maybe it's just because I'm getting old, but <laughs> it's uh, yeah. But I think it's it's true though, right? Um, what do you, what do you think? Is that uh, this the escape from the Bay Area by many people? Is that going to be the turning point, the final nail in the financial coffin? <laughs> uh, I I mean I think that not just like forget Bay Area. I think in general, we're kind of on the cusp of, uh, on the precipice of relearning what the economy should really be about. Um, right now, what we've been taught growing up is that we need to kind of fight to get our own right to serve our own needs. And if all of us just kind of go out of our way to fight for what we want and benefit our own material self, well, then that's the perfect economy. That's, that's the premise behind our economy really. And I think that has kind of been exposed to be quite flawed and Basically, we're reaching a point where it will no longer be tenable for this kind of economy to operate. Um, yeah. So 
we're doing everything we can to delay that, you know, trillions and trillions of dollars are being put into the economy. It's a bandaid to kind of, yeah, to kind of keep this thing going. Um, and people are frantically kind of like, it's almost like a, a, a giant game of musical chairs. That's almost how I see it where, you know, when the music stops, if you're the one who doesn't have a chair, you're out of the game. Yeah. And that's kind of what we're seeing in the economy, right? Those who kind of, uh, uh, when, when the, you know, when the fun stops, when the music stops, uh, there are some who win and there are some who are losing. Um, but this kind of understanding of the economy is sort of modeled after nature, right? Its premise is competition is the only thing that we should kind of factor into how we structure our economic activity and in relationships within society. And, uh, that is, in my opinion, a very flawed assessment of how we should do things, right? So I think uh, what we will see in the coming years will be a move towards the idea that we have to do things in ways that aren't just looking out for our own needs, right? You're, you're seeing it happen like baby steps at a time every day, right? We see... Uh, you know, a new desire to have a certain amount of our economy go towards like clean energy by a certain date, right? Like you see these small events and you don't really kind of make much of them because they're, they seem kind of insignificant or like uh, perhaps like things that are too idealistic or something like this. Um, but slowly we're moving away from this concept of you know, United States, we do what's best for us, you know, you, you know, China, whatever other country, you do what's best for you. Um, because that is, is, is leading towards a conflict. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, either we will face one of these conflicts, whether it's a war between countries or uh, uh, an, an issue of devastating, you know, uh, weather conditions that uh, affect certain parts of the, the earth, where, which is already happening, but even more devastating, perhaps. Or we will figure out how to uh, operate in a more cooperative manner with each other that is kind of more intelligent way of structuring uh, the economy in general. Um, and I think that's those are that's the kind of uh, uh, dual duality that we face in the future. It's like maybe it's going to be some of this, maybe it's going to be some of that. But ultimately, I think it will necessarily become less competitive and more of a cooperative um, relationship that we engage in between individuals, between communities, countries. Um, and if we don't, there will be just massive ramifications. So I don't think we have a choice. Yeah. And I think it necessarily we'll have to go that direction. Um, but, uh, yeah. Huh. Yeah. Well, when you mentioned, you know, on a grander scheme, uh, national 
or international competition, right? And um, we've seen this movie before and we've seen how it's turned out in the past, right? 99%, and that's just a number I'm throwing out there. It's not backed by uh, actual statistics, but it's, um, let's just say majority of international conflicts that lead to war, um, that lead to innocent people being enlisted or, or even volunteering to go into the military and, and fight these wars. Um, that has all stemmed from some sort of greed, right? Some sort of hunger or thirst for having more power, money, notoriety, respect, which the last word respect, I think, is lost when you actually end up going to war. That's my opinion. But um, it's uh, we've seen it happen. I mean, history can tell the, tell us this just by you know looking at at the two world wars we've been through, right? Um, that and and a third one is looming at this point, right? It feels like because of all again, it's it's the same uh story just told by different authors you know it's 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 and and you know the, <clears throat> there's a saying that goes you know it's okay to make mistakes but um and i'm paraphrasing this but it's, it's something along the lines of when you continue to do the same thing and not get the re- and get the same result, the same undesired result. It's like the definition of insanity, right? So, yeah. <laughs> and and we're, and it's like, as nations, we're allowing this. And by say, and when I say as nations, I'm saying that the people, the people that are actually citizens of these otherwise beautiful countries, right? Like, we're allowing this to continue by, by allowing the the corrupt that are running the countries essentially into the ground, whether it's financial or, or even spiritually. Um, it's, it's, uh, I mean, um, when are we going to stop doing the same thing or allowing the same story to replay and replay and expect a different result, right? Eventually, like you said, it's going to have to be this, this unhealthy level of competition, because I don't believe that competition in itself is a bad thing, right? I think healthy competition is beautiful, right? And let's look at sports, right? And look, and and it and it's a it's a small example, but we can look at and not even not even um, let's not even look at sports that are making substantial amount of money. Let's look at high school sports, right? Look at high school competition we've you've seen it i've seen it um the the emotions right in those games because that's all it is it's just there's only one goal it's it's to to beat the other team in that set sport basketball football whatever it is but the reward is um is great but i've seen it many times where it was a an amazing game that was played on both sides. Of course, by the end of the game, one team 
comes up short, right? Uh, of the, of the higher score or the, or the winning score. And, and I've seen how quickly those same athletes, non-paid athletes run across to the, the losing team, the less fortunate team and just embrace them and, and hold them right. And, and hug them and, and, and connect with them in a level that is on a, and, and to me, like that is, the beauty of competition, right? That is, that is the healthy way of competing when you have empathy and when you have understanding and when you can, um, you can feel for the other side. Right. And, and, and when you're, uh, when you're both aiming for that same cup, whatever the reward is at the end, right. You're aiming for it. There's again, money isn't involved. That's why I'm, I'm focusing on non-paid, competition it uh it's it's so pure right and it and it's beautiful to see you know it's like when we watch the olympics or world cup it, there's to me it, there's so much more um passion in that that's required uh because you're not motivated by how much money you're getting out of it right i'm not knocking like the pro sports that, you know, if you're great at something, why not be compensated for it? And, and, and if that's being a football player or a, or a soccer player or, or a basketball player, but even that's fun to watch, right. As an audience member. Right. But because there's something real and, and um, there's an intangible emotion that's transferred from, from the athletes on the court or on the field to the people viewing it because we, we can, we can connect it, right. We can connect to those emotions. So, so I, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but there's cooperation within that competition. You see what I mean? There's cooperation mm -hmm. within that. So now let's bring it back to, to, um, competing governments. That is now, where that cooperation, like you said, is, is going to have to come back. It's, or if it was ever, and there might be countries out there. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure of any, but there are countries out there that I know they're doing great. Right. But we rarely hear about them. Right. Uh, I know Finland is great. Their education is top notch. N Norway is, um, you know, these countries are, uh, aren't having the struggles like the United States is having or some other countries that are comparable to the U S it's, um, I mean, I, we'd have to kind of zoom into their, uh, methods and see how they're dealing with their government. But, uh, ultimately when you think about the, the people first, it, I think that's the first step you have to think about the citizens and not think about, uh, whatever gets us to be number one, like that's where be the competition becomes unhealthy because you're now essentially ruining people's lives, whether through war or through different classes due to lack of, uh, opportunities, uh, and, um, or any other thing that, that affects the people's health, 
be it physical or mental, which I think mental is even worse ultimately, but you know, so do you agree that, you know, if it's centered on, on love for, for people, not just your own country's people, but the world, a worldview of it. Right. And I think spirituality come plays into that. Yeah. I think the sports uh, example is, is, is a good one because I do think that, you know, uh, I think sports are like an extremely positive thing for um, people to engage in or just, you know, to watch and to be a part of uh, because um, it's um, I guess what I'm thinking of is the competition for individuals inside of a, a, a sports game. Let's say like you're playing basketball and um, you're on a team and you're competing in a league. Well, for you to be able to kind of bring out the best in yourself, you actually need somebody on the other side to play a role of being an extremely good competition, right? So it's almost as if the real competition is not actually with that person on the other side of the, on the, on the other side of the court. It's, it's more of the, uh, almost a competition with yourself, right? Because you're trying to get better at the game. And in order to do that, you need them. You need that person to be there. So that is almost, it's, it's kind of a different form of competition, right? It's, it's not a form of competition where I inherently need you to suffer in some, you know, material way or physical, you know, what, you know, uh, of course, losing is not fun, right? But it is a part of improving yourself. So uh, that is is very different from the kind of competition that um, you see when you're like working in you know in 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 uh, the economic system here, where in order for me to win, we have to destroy that competition. Like we have to make sure that they're you know, uh, situation doesn't work so that we can either gobble them up or they don't get to have any of the winnings, right? Like that's the mindset that you see in the business, uh, society and also in the, um, you know, in the government arena too, right? Like we, we seem to have this conversation with China where, you know, we have quite an antagonistic viewpoint of China, um, you know, oh, they're, they're hurting us. Um, so let's try hurt them back. Right. Right. Which is ridiculous because we're the ones who, you know, sent our jobs to China. Right. So how can you be blaming them for having all the, you know, so my, it's my point narrative. is that this it's is a, a different, yeah, 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 yeah. No, I different form of competition. And this is an unhealthy competition. You're right. I think, the, there, there needs to be a sense of spiritual values under undergirding these things, right? In, you know, empathy, uh, love, care, uh, uh, even um, justice, right? Like, it, is it just for me to um, buy a third, you know, uh, a third home when 
somebody else doesn't even have a place to live. Like that's, if you were to kind of like look at it in the economic sense that we've been told, the story we've been told, uh, you would have to say, well, you know, you earn that money, you have the right to do what you want. Um, and, and they didn't do something right. It's their fault. Uh, whatever, whatever their condition is, it's completely on them. Um, and thus, uh, you know, it's your duty to maximize your, your, your own self gain. This is a form of competition where that person and myself are maybe interested in a house, except for me to win that person may have to lose. And that's, that's where the idea of, is this just, is this right? Is this compassion? Is it, you know, these are spiritual kind of principles. Yeah. That's where they come into play. And that's where I think, and I agree with you, the differences between sports at the end of a sports game, assuming, you know, there's no fighting, which, you know, sometimes happens, but they go like right now I'm watching some of these Olympic uh, trial games for, yeah. for the um, dream team. And at the end of the game, they all go and shake everyone else's hand on the opposing team. Like they're, you may have lost, but you still give that respect. You still like show some love. You don't, you know, you, you understand that they're there to help you challenge yourself harder to help you. They're really like help. They're, they're almost cooperating with you in a way. Um, and it's not, you know, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, you, you mentioned like in the Olympics and, and the, um, the, the U S team or all the, all the international teams that are competing, but at the end, they, they show love. It, it begins and ends with love, right? That's, that's such a huge, uh, point to remember. Um, and that could, uh, that could, I mean, quite easily be applied to business and, and governments, right? So long as that is the, uh, that is the intent going into uh, a, a business meeting or a business discussion or even uh, a conversation. And, and you mentioned spirituality as, as did I, but I think the bigger, the word that's even more relevant to everyone right because some people are not they don't deem themselves as spiritual okay so and that's there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that the people whoever however you decide to live your life that's your choice right um but everyone are, at the end of the day we're all human right so that person like you mentioned that that can't even afford a place to live that's a human being and the person who bought his third or fourth home, his or her, they're also at the end of the day, a human being. We all go to sleep at night, right? If we can, I struggle sleeping <laughs> but, or, you know what I mean? Like we, uh, we're all as, you know, if we're fortunate enough and we're able, right. We all wear our pants one leg at a time. And, and, and that it's, it's simple, but it, it gets the narrative that's put out there makes it more complicated right they and, and it's all i i feel part of the um the 
control or the attempted control of how people think, right? Like you said earlier in, in the episode today, in the episode today that, you know, we were, we were all raised on the belief that you, you want to buy a home. It's a great investment from our own families, from our own parents, right? <laughs> like, or, or, uh, or even this, get, get your college education. It's essential. Like, you know, and for, for example, for my parents moving to this country, right. Uh, you know, and, and being persecuted in Iran for just their beliefs, what I just talked about, you're open to believe whatever you want to believe. That's the humane way, right. To, to deal with things, cooperative way, by the way, that's also, that's a result of unhealthy competition. If you really look at it, right. Religious persecution, uh, um, just uh, mentality, like persecuting on a uh, mental uh, belief, right? Um, it, is it's all part of a bigger, grander uh, scheme, and and you know that's a whole other uh, conversation. But my point being that you know. My family, my parents moved here for myself and my sister to have an opportunity at higher education because that wasn't going to be the case in Iran. So, and unfortunately, it's still going on, right? So, and and then we moved here 26 years ago, you know. So, um, and, but that's not for everyone. Not everybody has uh benefits, right? That benefits from going into higher education, right? I know many cousins of my, my own who are entrepreneurs by nature. Like that's who they are. Like they wanted to ride out of high school, get the ball rolling, right? And just start creating businesses. And, and you know, they, they succeeded some, you know, some didn't, but that was who they are. And at, at the end of the day, they didn't have a regret. You know what I mean? You, mm-hmm. you don't, if your end all be all is money and how much money you can make, I think that's a toxic way of uh, pursuing life for me. Again, this is my, my opinion on this because it's okay to pursue money. If you're doing it with, again, we talked about a cooperative mentality um, and, and um, you're just looking at the financial freedom, quote unquote, as a bonus rather than that's what winning means you know that i think you said in sports uh win or lose the game they they show love and i think that's the win ultimately for both teams right and 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 that that healthy competition on the court or on the field and the audience watching that's the win because we are engaged but when you hand, when we approach everything in a cooperative manner, there are millions and millions of people who define themselves as non-competitive people, correct? And we know a bunch. There, there are a lot of people out there who are not competitive, right? So when, when, so when we look at it as a cooperative approach, guess what? That covers the non-competitive people too, right? Because now you, you think about, okay, well, I'm first of all, I'm not just thinking about how I am, right? I know I'm competitive, but I now because I'm looking at it as a cooperative 
approach through a cooperative approach. Now I, I empathize for the person who's not competitive. But when you only think competitive in an unhealthy way, then, oh, screw that person. They're going to lose. Who cares? And it can get really sickening and, and it can get, it can really kill your humanity. And, and, and you know, humanity, spirituality, at, at some points, they are kind of interchangeable. But it's, um, you know, that, that is, uh, that is <laughs> where the tide is turning, I think. With- yeah. I, I mean, I think the term competition is a bit, um, the way that we think of it is not 100% accurate. Like, uh, like you're saying, and like we were talking about earlier, um, you know, to be competitive is really a desire to make yourself better, right? It's not, it's not that you want others to not do well. Yeah. And I think that's where that term gets used. It gets used kind of interchangeably in both of these scenarios. So a lot of people, when they kind of say, oh, it's, you know, it's so great to have competition. That's like the driver of everything that is working in our, in our economy, in our, in our world. Right. Uh, you know, and as Americans, we're the most competitive and, you know, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. this, uh, this kind of concept, um, it, it needs to be like very carefully looked at because if that competition is, if by being competitive, you are somehow causing somebody else to, uh, you know, to be hurt at the end of the day, then that's not actually you like, there's two forms, right? You can either be competitive because you're trying to just get better yourself every day. And I, I totally respect that. I think we all should have that kind of competitive drive. Um, and even people who say they're cooperative, I think they, they still strive for that too. So I would argue anyone, you know, everyone uh, probably has this instinct within them. Like, I think it's part of the human nature to get better. Mm-hmm. The other form is like, I need to crush somebody and, and get rid of them because may, and maybe the reason why I want to do that is because I don't think I can beat them otherwise, mm-hmm. if, unless they're out of the picture altogether, mm-hmm. or I don't want to be threatened to have to, you know, perform better because this other person might, might, you know, uh, start to do better than me in some things. And, so I just need to, you know, kill it off. That's, that's a really toxic way of looking at the world, right? It's a really like egotistical way to look at the world. It's almost as if you presume the world should be, you know, working around what you need. Uh, and generally that is, you know, materially. So I, I think it is a good distinction to make. And, and you're right. I, I, I think uh, competition in that former sense is, you know, uh, is very healthy and needed. Yeah. And I think, um, to go, to add to your point, to take it further, it, it ties into mental health. I feel when, um, we redefine, we redefine competition, uh, as to, in order for me to be better, I have to be better than them. 
I think that uh, it could tie into insecurities that we may have, right? I mean, we all deal with different types of insecurities. So, you know, and I know for me, when I was younger, I would look at composition like that and I would compare myself. You know, when you compare yourself to someone else, it's the first step of a kind of like a downhill effort, right? Because it's just, you're, you're not going to be happy at the end of it. Because no matter, no matter how much you, no matter how much, let me just put it for myself, no matter how much I compared myself to others and I improved the crap out of my, uh, that aspect of my life, I wasn't happier, right? Because my goal wasn't pure. It wasn't, um, I wasn't just trying to be the best version of myself, right? Um, so in other words, because of my insecurity about not being at good at, at, at something as that person A or person B, I destroyed myself in the process and by the time I even achieved that goal to like be at the same level or better, like my humanity was in check. Right. I was like, okay, what, like, it wasn't fun. Right. It, that wasn't any, it wasn't um, riveting or exciting. So I think that is a big part of it, man. Do you know what, do you know what I think about uh, you, you'll like this reference. Do you remember in um, the last dance? Uh so, you know, the, the docu-series about Michael Jordan and the Bulls during yeah. their, you know, great uh, rise and, and challenging, uh, you know, and, and championship wins and all that. Yeah. There was this one part in an episode, which uh, I guess uh, I don't remember the team that, you know, the Bulls were playing against, but uh, MJ was playing against some random team and there was some person guarding him and... Um, Basically, they had like a back-to-back -back game. So they were playing, you know, tonight, and then they were going to play the same team the following night. Yeah. Uh, and then, or, or something, you know, something that maybe it wasn't uh, the same team the following night, but uh, they played again later on down the year. And then Michael had basically, um, uh, I guess this random guy scored a lot on the opposing team and like mentally in his head, M Michael had fabricated a story about what had happened during the game. He made up this story that like this player, I don't know. I can't remember exactly the details. Like he trash talk, Michael. Uh, yeah. Maybe I should say MJ. Michael's kind of weird to just keep saying Michael, like first name. <laughs> Nobody says that. Uh, but like, uh, MJ like made up this entire story in his own mind about what had happened with that player to be able to amp up himself to like get his competitive juices going so that the next time, next time down, uh, you know, next time they met that team and played that team, he like went all out and just like yeah. destroyed this team. Yeah. But he was using this like this story he made up in his head, and he, I guess he, he you know, I'm trying to picture like how the level of thought you'd have to have to kind of like bring yourself to like believe this thing you've made up so much that yeah. you'd get like emotionally like 
highly engaged and, and like be able to muster up tons of energy to, um, you know, bring it, uh, on that second game. And it's just funny. I mean, it's not the best, like it's, it's kind of not the best method maybe to get yourself amped up into like performing better, but, um, the fact that it, it just kind of shows that MJ wasn't competing really with that guy because he easily could have destroyed that guy, you know, probably every single game he ever played this guy. Right. Yeah. Uh, but he needed a way to make himself think that he needs to perform better so that he could become an even better competitor and it was like almost like a fuel, but that yeah. kind of just shows the real competition is with yourself. It's yeah. not with that random loser that he played against, whoever it was. <laughs> it was it was literally with he was competing with himself to find a way to muster up more energy. I like that, how we were going from like you know love and cooperation. Oh, that loser. <laughs> <laughs> like, we, like switched it up so fast. Well, he uh, was literally a loser. <laughs> in the game, in the game, we're talking. Yes. About. <laughs> um, no, man, that's true. But also, you know, we got to think about at that time of Mike, Michael Jordan. And it's always like, Michael, we all know, you know, we're talking about Last Dance, Chicago Bulls, my favorite team. Uh and it's truly the last dance. They haven't danced since then. <laughs> so we've been uh, dealing with those uh, subpar years. But anyway, yeah, that uh, you're right on that. You nailed it on the head. But it takes, I mean, it took him to talk about that moment, right? Like 25 years later or whatever years later it is from uh, the timeline of the 90s when that was. And then when last last dance came out and i think 2019 or 2020 came out in 2020 and it's um and and then you have to also think about you know he had the pressure of the entire fandom of the nba uh as being the number one right so he's dealing with all of that and then for this guy who uh comparably here's a key word comparably to him wasn't number one and then he puts up the points that he does or he do, he outdoes him in that game. So the pressure combined with him creating this narrative to be able to muster up the competitive spirit and juice to, again, himself being better, right? So, I mean... Um, he I had no competition that was good enough to give him that drive, right? Like when you're at the top, you don't have, like there's very few people to motivate you to become even better because you're the best, right? So yeah. what do you do at that point? I guess you just start making stuff up in your own <laughs> mind, right? Like you need something that doesn't even exist to exist for you, you to know, compete against. It's <laughs> You're right at, you know, he was the best at the, during the time, of, during his career in the NBA, but you know, there's also a saying it's it's the loneliest when you're at the top, right? Um, and and the reason I bring that up is because again, when we're competitive to be the best in an unhealthy way, 
you can feel that loneliness at the top, right? But when you, when you do it, the real question is, can you, and I, I believe you can, but um, when you get to becoming the best, right? Statistically speaking, just statistically speaking, um, numbers, right? You become the best, but you're cooperative and you love, you have love, right? For your opponents or for, for the competition, and and you bring them up with you, right? You don't you don't bash them or you don't talk down. Now Michael was guilty of of really putting the thumb down on, you know, he was a trash talker, there, you know, and he was, uh, you know, in the spirit of the game. If it's again, if it comes with love and it's fun and games, it's fine. And he's friends with Gary Payton. He's friends with, you know, uh, all of his competition. Charles Barkley, you know, they they jab at each other all the time. But you know, it behind the the that camera and all of that it's it's ultimately you know they're all friends and and it's love so you know now comparing that to you know this generation's i guess greatest player lebron you know and it's debatable everyone's always debating it but um i only uh measure it through who has been in space jam so, so it's uh, you know the two Space Jams, which at the time of this recording, that uh, Space Jam: A New Legacy just came out uh, yesterday, being the uh, what's today the seventeenth. So it came out on the sixteenth, July sixteenth. So we're talking right now; it's July seventeenth. Although this episode comes out, ladies and gentlemen, July twenty seventh. Um, so the topics that we're talking about currently may. Uh, some of the topics may have already come to a conclusion like, and I wanted to kind of segue into this um, uh, LeBron, you know, he's um, they always uh, label him as he's too nice. Right. They always label him because why? Cause they compare him to Michael, right. They compare him to Michael Jordan a lot or even Kobe Bryant, right. Rest in peace, Kobe. But it was, um, you know, they call it the killer instinct. Does LeBron have the killer instinct, right? But what does that even mean, right? If we're if we're like if we're looking at uh, if we're defining the best as having killer instinct, right? Well, I'll, I define the best as okay. How many how many championships has he won, right? Has or how many times has he finished an NBA season as the champion? Okay, he's done it four times. But he's also not done yet, right? But like, he also did it on three different teams, and one of those teams, like, had almost had no chance statistically of having that championship against you know the Warriors. So like, but then they say he doesn't have it. He did. He doesn't have the killer instinct. That's that's the narrative that's been put out there. I disagree, uh, and I define killer instinct as as um, winning the game together. He he. You know, he, he has more assists than Michael Jordan. And I'm a, I'm a Bulls fan, and I'm saying this, right? It's not I'm, – I'm trying to be unbiased and, and just objectively speaking, right? He's played more years than Michael, of course. But, you know, he's, um, he's also be, – because he's had losses in the NBA Finals, <laughs> they, you know, they always use that against him. But that's when we just look at wins and losses, and that's it. I think – there's more to it than that. And, and um, you know, his teammates and Michael Jordan as well. But Michael Jordan had 
Scotty Pippen, right? And and he had a, a one of the 50 greatest players of all time. He had, you know, Dennis the Menace in, in you know, he had the warm who was and he had all these great amazing like revolutionary players on on his team. He couldn't have done it alone and he didn't do it alone. Right? For a long time. It took him a while. He had all those hard heartbreaks against the Detroit Pistons of the 80s, you know, um, until the 90s was his decade. Um, LeBron, same thing. You know, he had to get swept by the Spurs. Anyway, uh, the point being, and, you know, he got swept by the Warriors on uh, the, on their last meet. So it, he's had his heartbreaks too, but um, ultimately I think it, uh, you can't really compare them just from a standpoint of wins and losses, they played in two different complete eras. And I, and I know we're getting into sports now and, and we've kind of walked away from the economy, but I think we, I think the bigger topic here is competition and, and how we look at it. So um, I think, uh, yeah, I think uh, players like Steph Curry, LeBron, um, uh, they're I view them as cooperative players. They're competitive in a healthy, cooperative way. Um, whereas, uh, you know, Kobe and Michael were amazing. Um, but they both have on, on record said, right, in the last dance for Michael, and then Kobe has been recorded as saying that um, I just wanted, when I would see my teammates not putting the efforts I was putting in, I, I didn't want them there, right? So, and this could be controversial, what I'm about to say, but, you know, that that's borderline not cooperative, right? Like, it, the, the time wasn't put in to understand your teammates. It was kind of like, do what I do, and that'll win, right? And it's, you're, you, we're not, and again, at that high level, the pressure and all that, I understand, it can be paramount, Um so well, I, I also think it's it's not fair for the other player who's not putting in as much effort too, because um, you know, you could ask them, are you doing, you know, are you doing what's right? Are you being uh kind and respectful to MJ who's putting in like all of his yeah. weekend? There's a balance there, right? Like, and at yeah. the same time, MJ, you know, uh probably shouldn't be like get out of here <laughs> he probably should find a better way to do uh what he does but i mean at the end of the day uh uh he's one of the most winning people so you can't really argue with yeah his approach but maybe he could have been even better like that's the thing we'll never know is that maybe if you know he tweaked some of the things that he did maybe he could have been an even more spectacular player or the team in general could have been even more yeah successful in in some ways it's um it's it's gonna be one of those top you know th this topic of you know these great great uh superstars of of the league the nba it's gonna be debated as long as there's time i mean you can't like i feel like it's this is something that everyone is you know debated for a long time uh, you know, who's the, who are the top five players of all time? Who's, yeah, you know, yeah. the goat, who's yeah. the, you know, and like, we, we're all entitled to our own opinions. There are some like numbers we can like use to 
maybe make an argument that's more sound like, okay, MG has so many titles and this person has so many titles, but like at the end of the day, in reality, if you were to pick some of those great people, like if you picked, um, I don't know, let's say, uh, MJ and Kobe, you know, who's the best player. There's a chance that Kobe could have played better one-on-one against MJ. Yeah. Uh, and, and we'll never be able to actually know the truth. I feel like it's a very, it's just fun to imagine, right? It's just fun to fantasize about it. Right. It's kind of like, right. Like you and myself, you know, we, you know, we were, uh, early teenagers when, when, uh, Michael was the top of the NBA. Right. And then, uh, by the time Kobe wrote, came in i was like 16 17 and then you know into my uh i guess i could say like late 20s right he was still in the league but you know his um his prime was 2009 10 and then you know now we're in our 30s and and lebron is on top of the league and 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 you know that's even up for debate now between kevin durant and him and steph curry and it's all beautiful though, right? Because when we, again, I think when we're talking about these fun debates, even that can get competitive in an unhealthy way, right? And it can, but it can be beautiful when it's cooperative and it's just out, out with love and fun and we're just, you know, um, fun banter and joking. There's a huge uh, pressure that's lifted when we do it that way, right? It's like, there isn't any pressure at the end of the day. We're just, it's a fun discussion, right? And I think when we forget that, it's when we cross into the unhealthy way. All right. Speaking of basketball and competition, and um, you, my friend, were an avid <laughs> Phoenix Suns fan when I knew you uh, in your 20s. <laughs> and then the Warriors started winning. And uh, granted, you are a fan of them as well. Um, but right now you're the Phoenix Suns, and Phoenix is where you were born, or what? What city were you born in? I was born in Mesa, which is yeah, a city nearby. Nearby, right? So okay, so so we got a at the time of this episode, ladies and gentlemen, we we are a few hours away from Game Five, which is going to be back in Phoenix. The series is tied two two. What are your thoughts on the on the series so far, and where what do you predict for tonight's game? Uh, I haven't, truth be told, seen all the games in their entirety. Um, yeah. However, I missed Game Three for the record. I didn't watch it. Yeah, it seems <laughs> like it seems like if I had to say if there's a better team, I would have to say it's the Suns. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of like, they're a better team. Uh, they, they're led by, you know, Chris Paul, one of the best, you know, leaders in basketball. Um, Let's see and, if he bounces back from the last game, though. He played horrible in the last game. Yeah, well, I mean... The thing is, is that, you know, somehow Giannis has really upped his game. So now uh, uh, it seems like 
Phoenix doesn't really have an answer for that kind of big man, uh, you know, low post area. Uh, well, Sarich being hurt really hurt you guys. Hurt hurt the Suns, I should say. Well, yeah, I I wouldn't call myself a you know a Suns fan at this point, just because I was more of a Steve Nash era fan and Steve Nash fan in general. But um, I do like. I, you know, I really like point guards. I mean, when I grew up in Arizona, there was KJ, Dan Marley, Charles Barkley. That whole team was, uh, you know, almost won. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, the Bulls prevented that. So I know Suns have never actually won a championship, I, I think. Yeah, They're they have like the only organizations, yeah. never won. Are they um, the only one? I thought there was a few other teams. Or has every team won a, a ring? Sorry, I think they're the oldest running. So like oh, they there may have te- been teams that came after them that haven't won, but yeah. Um Yeah, and then, you know, after that, uh we had the great um uh uh, uh I'm spassing on his name. What's his name? Jason Kidd led yeah. Suns. Yeah. So and then after that, uh well, Jason Kidd kind of mentored Steve Nash for a little while. Yeah. Um, so Arizona teams, I mean, the Suns have had like great point. The guard. best point guards, I think, of the last, I mean, 25 years have been all somehow they've all been in Phoenix. So I don't know why that is, but um, Chris Paul is, you know, if you were to think of the best traditional point guard right now, he has got to be like probably the strongest like traditional style point guard right they're not like one of these uh Kyrie or Steph kind of point guards where they don't really do a lot of passing they're more running and driving and shooting playmakers play yeah they're not they're not playmakers in that in the in that traditional point guard sense right um it's true so also Chris Paul is probably one of the most unlucky point guards yeah he's got he's always had unfortunate injuries at the worst time during his 16 years uh run uh in his playoff teams with the clippers and then the houston rockets um you know he he was he was hurt against the warriors that was a tough one and um when they were up three two that's why uh when he beat the clippers this year um it was almost like a like a monkey off his back right so yeah um, now let's see where they go man so what what what's your prediction how many how many how many more games are we going to have get out of this series it's best out of three now um i think i i think the suns will probably win in how many games uh probably the full seven seven games so, so that means they're not winning in Milwaukee. That means they're not winning in Milwaukee. I'm saying that means they either have to win tonight and they'll lose in Milwaukee and come at game six. Oh, I see. Yeah. Um, or they lose tonight somehow, and then they have to win two in a row. So, yeah, they've been a bit exposed for I don't know what what they're doing wrong. I think that it's that low post area that they're kind of struggling with, I think. So they've been getting, picking up a lot of fouls. Devin Booker has kind of yeah. 
Um, I mean, we can take another game. If Devin was, didn't, by the way, Devin had like nine fouls in the last game and they only (laughs) called, they only called five, but, um, you know, it is what it is. Um, but if he was, if he didn't pick up the fifth foul by basically decking, um, who was it out of bounds for that fifth foul in the game four, um, he was on fire, man. I mean, we could be looking at a three, one series right now. Right. But they took him out. Chris Paul couldn't answer. Right. And on, he had his probably worst game of the playoffs this year. Um, and then, then now we're tied at two and, but we got to give credit to Chris Middleton on the other side. Right. He played amazing in that game. They needed him to uh, drew holiday has been a nightmare for Chris Paul to say the least. He's a great defender. So and he's putting all his energy on defense right now, full court. He's been covering him. Um, but yeah, man, it'll be interesting. Um, what about you? Who are you? So here's the thing. I didn't have a favorite. I I'll be happy for Chris Paul, but but the way he played in the last game, if he keeps playing like that, I I wouldn't be like disappointed if he lost because you know you, you made it this far and you were two games away, and you know if you can't finish the job at this point, it's you know his. It's almost like, I mean, he's going to be a Hall of Famer regardless of what happens, but um, the Bucks are just, uh, it's almost like they know they have the obvious advantages, which is they're way bigger of a team, right? Um, and aside from DeAndre Ayton, you know, unfortunately, Sarge had the torn ACL. So now it's basically, you know, Phoenix is limited in, in their players that could match up. You know, between uh, Brooke Lopez and uh, and you have you know Giannis, and you would think that the Bucks would be like, all right, just pound it inside, and that's your advantage. But then they'll go and start shooting threes for no reason, right? And I, I don't know if it's like a. Uh, I mean, Phoenix isn't even really building a wall against Giannis necessarily, right? I mean, they did it. They did it more so in Game Four. But, you know, Chris Middleton took fire. So now they have to figure out how to stop Middleton and have a wall. So if Middleton is going to have another one of those games, it might open it up again for Giannis. So we'll see. But um, I think it'll go – it will be amazing if it goes seven because, like, the 2016 finals, um, that was probably one of the best finals in a long time, Um, objectively speaking. I know you're a Warriors fan, but looking back at it, you know, we can argue that it was a entertaining uh, must see finals. Right. Um, And so we'll see. I say, I say if Phoenix wins tonight, um, it'll go seven. But if, if Milwaukee somehow takes this win tonight, then I think it might end in Milwaukee for And obviously Milwaukee would win. You know, I, 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 I just think Middleton has been a little like on and off. Um, That's true. I'm not sure why that's the case. And I'm, it kind of bothers me about him. And I don't think Giannis, Giannis, whatever. (laughs) I don't think he's capable of like winning the game on his own. And not win that one, anyone he can is win one game. I think he sh- he can win one game on his own, but he sh- he's not going to be able to win the series on his own. He's 
I don't know. I just remember the previous years where we've watched the Bucks, and every time I've seen them play, I'm pretty disappointed at their performance. And like at the end of the day, in my mind, I came to a conclusion that this team is just not like he's a spectacular individual player. Um, you know, they have several spectacular players, but they just don't have, I think, the intelligence that that kind of Chris Paul, I think, will bring into playmaking yeah. that they probably need. I think they need somebody who's like a Chris Paul to be on that team. Not necessarily as good as Chris Paul, but somebody who's a, more of a playmaker. And I think they would probably win pretty easily. I think so too. Um, but I think Phoenix is the better team. But when the but the Bucks, if they actually take advantage of their size, then it's going to cause problems um, for the Phoenix Suns. But they haven't consistently done that, right? They've done it a couple times, but they haven't. You know, you know, Giannis jacking up threes. He doesn't need to do that. He actually is has a multiple advantages to to driving in because one um he can get an and one yes his free throws are very uh unpredictable but um you're putting them in foul trouble which is this is this was probably the biggest advantage they can have devin booker uh getting in foul trouble by the way middleton should be driving too right um i mean he's a he's like a religious uh mid-range scorer right <clears throat> but um he has height advantage over devin and um or whoever's defending him i think crowder is on him sometimes but uh either way man it's when it's it's a it's turning out to be a healthy compet healthy com competition in the finals yeah. it, didn't, it didn't start out that way so i <laughs> i'm gonna enjoy it i'm gonna enjoy you know how what however it turns out i'll be happy for the Chris Paul, if he ends up getting his first chip, um, but I wouldn't be disappointed if the Bucks win too, because I don't really. And I think it's more fun watching it this way. I, I used to, yeah. kind of, I used to pick a team, and then I would get all butt hurt when it would turn out <laughs> the way I want. Every time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Except in 2016, <laughs> that was a miracle uh, comeback. So anyway. Um, Mish, thank you so much for being on. Uh, do you want to plug away your Instagram for people uh, to find you? Sure. Feel feel free to add me on Instagram. Uh, I'm at Michigan Faustini, so pretty easy to find. Just my full name. Right there. And uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, man. I post hey. uh, videos about like uh, travel and uh, uh, travel videos and stuff like that. So yeah, and uh, Michigan. Took after his mom in uh, having a hobby of photography, so I know uh, he has some uh, fun photos up as well and videos. So uh, check out his Instagram. Um, thank you for spending your Saturday uh, with me. I'm sure you could have found many better things to do on a Saturday <laughs> than, than stay here for over an hour. So, um, yeah, man. Uh, Everyone, uh, follow Michigan Faustini on Instagram. And don't forget to uh, subscribe, like, and follow uh, Fumble Podcast on YouTube and wherever you listen to your podcasts. This was the season finale of uh, season one, episode 21. 
This will be released on the 27th of July, 2021. Thank you guys for listening and I'll see you on the next one.